All right, would you please turn with me this morning once again to the book of Hebrews, chapter 4. Hebrews, chapter 4. Thanks for coming back, by the way. Last week we looked at this passage, but I also, during the course of last week's message, had us looking at several other places in the Bible this week. We're going to stay right here. Um, But I'm going to read a couple verses further than I did last week. So Hebrews chapter 4, starting again at verse 14, but I'm going to read through chapter 5, verse 2. You follow along as I read. This is God's word. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, remember from last week, this same Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins, He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Let's pray. Father, uh, just like we prayed a moment ago for the, the little ones, we pray now for ourselves. We need your word. Father, thank you for the way you meet us Sunday by Sunday, for the way you speak into our hearts, address us in our real lives. And so, God, we pray once again this morning, help us, speak to us, speak your word to us, plant it deep in our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This past Wednesday, um, I received an email from a member of our church family who earlier in the week had to face a very difficult, in fact, heartbreaking situation in his extended family. Uh, He sent me this email sharing his grief with me, asking for prayer, and at one point he wrote these words. He said, Mike, I remember sitting through many of your sermons, wondering what my faith will look like when it's really tested. Now, I'm guessing at some point, maybe often, every one of us has had a similar thought. In fact, if truth be told, every one of us is in that position every Sunday, right? We hear God's word, speak its amazing and almost incredible truth. We hear it call us to believe, and we think, how will it go with me when my faith is really tested? 
How will it go when it comes time to really believe this thing I'm hearing? This is one of the reasons, I believe, for this pastoral burden that I've told you about these past few weeks. I want so badly for this truth, all of it, to have its effect in our lives, to strengthen us, to establish us, to give us deep trust, deep joy, deep hope, deep confidence. And I have felt a particular burden for this truth, this truth here in Hebrews chapter 4, this truth about how Jesus is toward us now, what his heart is toward us now. I want that to have its effect so that we can live with this kind of confidence, this kind of assurance, this kind of hope that is spoken of here all the time. Last week in part one of this two-part message, I, I showed how this Jesus, who is in heaven now, is the same Jesus that we see so wonderfully presented to us in the Gospels. The same Jesus who we are so drawn to when we read about him there in the pages of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. And after looking at, remember this, three demonstrations of that truth, this same Jesus, a demonstration from the lips of Jesus, a demonstration from the lips of those angels, a demonstration from the lips of that holy man, Stephen. After looking at that, I summarized it this way. The tender affection and the gracious disposition that Jesus felt toward people while he was here on earth is the same tender affection and gracious disposition he feels toward us now. He is the very same Jesus. He is just as ready to receive and welcome us as he was with the people he interacted with when he was on earth. He is just as gentle and tender and compassionate toward you, toward me, as he was toward Peter after Peter denied him three times. With Mary Magdalene, with her sinful past, with Thomas in all of his doubting, with Martha in all of her fretting, with John in his steady plodding following of Jesus, with countless unnamed people, even unknown people. I mean, think of him in the Gospels. How tender Jesus was with people in their sin, in their infirmities. Friends, his heart toward us remains the same as it was on earth. He's the same Jesus. Christian, do not fear. Do not give in to the thought that Christ's going off to heaven in any way alters his heart toward you. So with that truth, I trust, clearly anchored. We get it. We want to look now at the effect, the profound effect of that truth, and that is what I want us to see here at the end of Hebrews chapter 4, beginning of chapter 5. So let me just read those verses again. I want you to have this. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. 
Let us, please notice this word, let us then, in other words, given the truth of that, let us therefore with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with me, the ignorant and the wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. I see four things there. Four truths. Two truths we need to see about ourselves. I'll touch those briefly. And then two truths we need to see about Jesus and how he is toward us now. So first, let's look at ourselves, our situation, our condition. Two truths about ourselves. First, we as humans are marked by weakness. In fact, notice it's weakness says. Chapter 4. Verse 15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. You know, when God created Adam and Eve, there was a strength about them, a creaturely perfection, a vibrancy, a vitality, a purity, a soundness of health, soundness of mind, soundness of body, soundness of soul. I mean, it must have been amazing. Clearly, they're not God. Not that kind of strength, not that kind of perfection, but they were perfect without weakness in what God created them to be. And then, in their choice to deliberately disregard God, to distrust God, sin and all of its consequences came in. Death and its effect on the body. Slowly eating away at our physical strength. Guilt and its effect on our psyches. Blame and its effect on our relationships. Separation from God and its effect on our sense of purpose, our sense of right and wrong, our sense of who we are. Everything got murky. Everything got damaged. Everything got tainted. Subject to infirmity. Vulnerable now we are to all sorts of things in this world. We feel this, don't we? Don't we? We feel lonely. We feel sadness. We feel discouragement. We can feel overwhelmed at times. We feel weak. We feel vulnerable to who knows what's coming next. So truth number one about ourselves, we are weak, we're vulnerable to, and affected by all kinds of things, touching our bodies and our minds and our souls in this world. Second, the second truth about us that we see here is that not only are we weak, but we're also sinners. Please notice, again, verse 15. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now the assumption there is that we do sin. He's like us in every way except he didn't sin. What's his point there? Well, his main point in that phrase, yet without sin, is that Jesus didn't sin, which is a really important point. I mean, your salvation hangs on that. I hope you know this. His perfectly righteous life, his perfect righteousness credited to you. And his death for our sin, not for his own, 
But even though his main point is about Jesus, it's clear that to make that point, he's assuming something we all know to be very true, and that is, we do sin. Makes that point explicit in chapter 5. For every priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward. He's talking there about not just our capacity, but our tendency to go astray. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. What does Paul say in Romans chapter 7? That which I would do, I don't do. That which I would not do, I keep doing. What is what does John say in 1 John? If we say that we do not sin, we deceive ourselves. We are sinners. Now, we're going to come back to that verse, verse 2, and see something very important in a moment. But for now, please just notice this point. There is a waywardness that characterizes us just as there are weaknesses that characterize us. And I'm guessing that every one of us sitting here this morning who belongs to Christ is painfully aware of this truth that we're weak, and that we can be wayward. And God is aware of it too. Jesus is aware. He knows our frame. He remembers what it's like to be dust. So this is our reality. This is the truth about us. We are marked by weaknesses and by waywardnesses. But now let's Let's look at this amazing, rescuing truth about Jesus and how he is toward us now. Two things. First, he sympathizes with us. Jesus sympathizes with us. Look with me at verse 15 once again. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted, tested as we are, yet without sin. He is, as the King James Version puts it, he is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He knows. He experienced it all, the weaknesses, the vulnerabilities, and there would be, <laughs> there would be small encouragement, small relief to us if that didn't mean that he particularly and distinctly, in other words, really was touched by them. There would be small encouragement, small relief to us if that meant just some of them and not all of them. He feels it. He's touched by it. He can identify with it. It's not just some objective clinical knowledge on his part or some objective memory on his part. No, he has felt it, and he feels it still. So let's look again at chapter 5, verse 2. Now, I want you to see something. The writer of Hebrews is talking here at the beginning of chapter 5 about normal, ordinary human beings who served as high priest. That is clear when you get to verse 3. Let me just read chapter 5, verses 1 through 3 again. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. He, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Now look at verse 3. Because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, 
just as he does for those of other people. In other words, there, the writer of Hebrews is talking about ordinary, normal human beings who are serving in this capacity as high priest. But in verses 1 and 2, he is also saying something about Jesus. Please notice that first word, for. He's just been talking about Jesus at the end of chapter 4, and now he's going to say something else. He's going to continue his argument about Jesus. And what he is saying is, listen, Jesus took on real humanity. With all of its weaknesses, he became one of us. So, verse 2, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. So, verse 15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Now, clearly... The writer is not implying that within his lifetime, Jesus encountered every possible experience, every possible testing that humans can face. I mean, just stop and think about this. He never experienced the specific weaknesses and frailties and temptations specific to women. He was a man. He never experienced the particular specific weaknesses and temptations of being married. He was single. He never experienced the specific weaknesses and temptations of the elderly. He never got old. He never experienced the specific weaknesses and temptations of those living in a highly technological society. But without question, Jesus experienced the broad range of human experience, and he faced a degree of temptation that we will never know, He experienced in full the pressures and the testing in his body, in his mind, in his spirit of living life in this fallen world. He did not, folks, let's not make some mistake here that Jesus somehow lived some privileged existence, kind of floating through, you know, Galilee in this bubble. Anytime something bad happened, you know, kind of bounced off the outside, and here he is just going through life with his halo perfectly in place, untouched by our realities. Listen, there is no trial that you will face that Jesus doesn't understand. And you might be sitting there hearing that and saying, Really? Really? Does Jesus really know and care about what I'm going through right now? Does he really know what it's like to suffer the loss of friends like I'm experiencing right now? Does he really know what it's like to be without Does he really know what it's like to suffer physically like I'm suffering now? Does he really know what it's like to be misunderstood and rejected? Does he really know what it's like to be assailed by dark thoughts? Well, you know the answer to every one of those questions. Yes, he does. Listen, whatever trial, whatever temptation, whatever misery you are experiencing, we can know and we can be comforted by the fact that Jesus was once under something very much like it. He knows from his own experience the misery, the distress of body, of mind, of soul. Friend, you are not alone. He sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. We have, you have one who is able to understand. He is fully aware and he is fully moved by what you experience. What stirs Jesus' heart toward us now? our weakness. 
our infirmities, our afflictions, our vulnerabilities. His heart is moved by the pain and suffering we feel. But now, remarkably, he is also moved with sympathy for us in our sin. This is something I was and am so eager for you to hear. This right here is a big part of that pastoral burden that I have felt over these past months. This is the thing that so caught my own attention some months ago now and ministered to me so deeply. He is moved. His heart is toward us when we sin. Look at verse 2, chapter 5, once again. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. Did you know that was in your Bible? He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward. One of the reasons the high priest must be from among flesh and blood humanity is so that he can deal gently with sinners. Friends, please hear this. Every one of us needs to hear this. Jesus does not have compassion on us. He doesn't sympathize with us just in our hardship. He has compassion on us. He feels sympathy toward us in our failures. Thomas Goodwin, old Puritan writer, he says it this way, Your very sins move his heart to pity more than anger. Your very sins move him to sympathy. He cares for you. He loves you. His anger is towards sin. Your very sin, though, moves him to pity. He sympathizes with you. He deals with you gently when you stumble. That stumbling doesn't turn him away from you. It turns him toward you. Like a father would be toward a stumbling child. When... When you feel like you want to run and hide from him because you've sinned, you know what he's doing? He's moving toward you. And he wants you to know that. This is my heart toward you. Fellow Christian, brother, sister, this is who we have. This Jesus with this heart. Like a doctor who's dealing with a sick patient, his hatred is not toward the patient but toward the disease. Christ's anger is toward the sin. You are his beloved child, and what he feels toward you is tender affection and a sympathetic grief. Nothing, if you are a Christian, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. So the first thing about Jesus we need to see is that he sympathizes with us in our weakness and in our waywardness. But if that's all he did, just sympathize. I say this very cautiously this morning, very carefully. If that's all he did, he would not be a great savior. I mean, as precious and as comforting as his tender sympathy is, we need something more. We need help. Like real help. Real strength. I need strength right now, God. Real comfort, real protection, real provision in my weakness, in my waywardness. So look at verse 16. Remember all that he said. Remember all we've said. Let us then 
with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Do you hear what that is saying? Do you see what God wants you to know? There is grace. Friends, do not let grace go fuzzy in your thinking. Grace is real. Grace is God's very tangible help in time of need. It is God's goodness, specific goodness to us. Real help from God. Provision from Him of what you need. And, and this is not random. You remember those floats in the 4th of July parades where they would throw the candy out into the crowd? I don't know if they do that anymore. Um, that's not what this is like, you know, just random, God throwing grace out. Hope you get some. Hope you like it. No, this is, this is aimed grace. I see you. I see you. I know your need. I'm very in touch with what you're going through. I see you. I know the grace that you need right now. And I'm ready to help. This is aimed grace, personalized grace, specific grace for you, for your need from one who knows and understands whatever your situation, Christian, wherever you are, wherever you are, Christ stands ready to help you with grace tailored specifically to your need. So just stop and think about your current situation. Think over this past week Think about this coming week. So any failures this past week for which you need grace and mercy? Guess what? Guess where you can find it? The throne of grace where Jesus sits with a heart towards you of tender affection and gracious disposition. Any situations coming up? This week, for which you need help, guess what? Guess where you can find it? Guess who's there with a heart full of tender affection and with a gracious disposition toward you? Grace to help in every circumstance. I I know many of you could stand up right now and give testimony of God's grace supplied. And I also know every one of us still stand in a position of great need. So what are we to do? It's really simple. And it's right there at the beginning of verse 16. Let us then with confidence, knowing what we know, let us draw near to the throne of grace. Let us go in prayer to Jesus. This Jesus. He invites us to come to him. He is full of welcome and affection, just like we see him in the Gospels. For us to fail to come to Christ is to rob ourselves of all of this. When I fail, and I can be tempted to think, I can't come to Christ now, or when my life is so heavy, or I just feel spent, I'm down, I feel like I can't even pray. Jesus says, just come. Just be here with me. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden down, and I will give you rest. 
My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Come to me. Find rest for your soul. So in simple trust, in a confidence based on knowing how the heart of Christ is toward you now, go to him. You have a great Savior, a great high priest who is for you. He sympathizes with you and he is ready to help you. Go to him. Knowing how ready he is to receive you, to welcome you, to care for you. Even in our weakness, we can go confidently. Knowing what he's like. And because we know his heart toward us, there will no doubt also be, at least a little bit, a grateful love for him as we come. I had someone say to me recently, I, I think it w- might have been one of the other elders, although I can't remember for sure. But someone said to me just a few weeks ago, Mike, when it comes time for you to step down, I want the people of Crossway to say, we love Jesus. Yeah, we miss Mike, but we love Jesus. And I want to do everything I can to help that happen. Not so much the miss Mike part, but the we love Jesus part. And I've tried to help that happen this morning. Here he is. This Jesus. And this is his heart toward you. Right now. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for those wonderful words. Lord, I pray that this little passage tucked here into this amazing book, in this larger book that you've given us, I pray that this passage will somehow um, get anchored so that we have it, we can draw on it, know its truth, and then live in light of its truth. God, we just humbly acknowledge we need your help even with that. We're so grateful that you love to give help. So grateful that your spirit helps us to pray even when we don't know how to pray with groanings too deep for words. God, you have given us so much. Lord, help us to not miss it. Help us to enter into the reality of what you have done for us and what you've provided for us in Christ. God, we want to live differently. We want to live in this new life that you've given us. And God, we recognize for now we still live in this world. And even with all of the goodness and richness of this world, there's some hard things. And so God, help us to as we already sang, turn our eyes upon Jesus. Look to him and find in him everything we need. God help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.